you know, Dad? That movie was pretty good after all. Can I be Zora when I grow up? Absolutely, son. We'll need to get you a bigger sword. Take that, you wicked tyrant! Dear. <laughs> oh, Martha, let him play. Thomas Wade, when he has nightmares tonight, you can be the one to calm him down. Okay, that's <laughs> enough for now, Bruce. We'll start you on fencing lessons when you're older. Say, 30. <gasps> I'll take that necklace you're wearing, lady. Leave her alone. Thomas! I swear by the spirits of my parents to avenge their deaths by spending the rest of my life warring on all criminals. Back to the bins. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and joining me as always is my very good pal, Paul Spataro. How you doing, Paul? I am doing eight. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Don't I sound uh, street just... when I talk like that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you do. You so, sound so street. <laughs> now, to, to let the listeners give the listeners a, a peek behind the curtain, poor Paul is here uh, as a he, he's been wounded in the line of duty. So I, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that all or not, Paul. But I, I think you're a real uh, I think you're a real sport for for being here despite being injured. For, for what it's worth, uh, just to, to give a very brief thing, I misstepped, rolled my ankle, and fractured my foot. Being the uh, as as in honor of Richard Donner, who passed away yesterday, oh. we can uh, touch on uh, a line from Superman the movie and say those cat-like reflexes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and this this may uh, be posted much later, so you know people are going to hear that date and. You know, they'll know how long uh, uh, a wait time they have between recording and posting, but right. uh, so be it. Well, you know, the uh, that Logan's Run that I just, uh, you know, the latest episode that we put up, it was number five. I was looking at the recording date on that as I was wrapping it up, and it was actually recorded just about a year before uh, I, I started doing the editing on it. I'm like, holy crap. I, I didn't realize we had actually stretched that project out as long as we had. That That's crazy to me. Well, and no by we, you, it, mean, you mean you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just, you know, just that, you know, it, it was that long ago. I mean, a whole year had, had kind of just slipped by me, and I didn't even realize. I mean, that's just nuts, but oh, well. <laughs> yeah, such is life, you know. Yeah. But it's exactly. uh, you know this this is this is the price we pay for you know pulling the curtain back a little bit. This is the price we pay in an effort to have a show on every week. And you know we yep. did have our little delay where there were website issues, but we we've you know I think been pretty consistent with a show a week for a very long time. And if people think you know you're getting before the microphone every week and that life is never going to get in the way, uh, that's a little naive. 
Right. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. You know, we, we have to try and you know make sure we have, always have a surplus of episodes. Otherwise, I guarantee you weeks will go by where there, there won't be an episode because sometimes a month will go by where we can't record. Yep. And I, I appreciate doing this approach. I really do, because, you know, back in the, in, you know, in the two true freaks proper days when it was just me and Honeywell, you know, doing our, our, you know, shows, there were a lot, I mean, a lot of weeks where it was like, holy shit, it's Friday night and we got a show going up, you know, on, on Monday or whatever. And it's and we had nothing, you know, and so it was a mad scramble to, you know, grab something, get it read, get it watched, whatever, you know, synopsize it and. I mean, just that whole, whole thing, and yeah, the, a lot of, you know, late nights, you know, a lot of, I can remember a lot of Sunday nights, you know, being up into the wee hours knowing that, you know, an episode's got to go up Monday morning, and, you know, th so yeah, I, 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 I don't know how we ever did it. I would not want to go back to living that way, so I, I like this idea of stockpiling episodes, you know. I remember, that, you know, there was a stretch there where I was kind of an unofficial regular on uh, Comics Comics Monthly Monday. And, you know, I remember Chris, you know, <laughs> like sending out the panic message to the group saying, we have to record. I don't have an episode to put up. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, Absolutely. You know, I, I do have a, a memory of that. And I've used that as kind of my, uh, you know, my, my, my warning scenario. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the old, old uh, the old posters that say, don't let this happen to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like this system so much better. I mean, we we usually have such a nice little stockpile of episodes that you know every once in a while you'll post up an episode and I'm like, oh my god, I forgot we ever even recorded that. That was so long ago. So I actually like that. So I mean, the you'll, show's not topical anyway. So you know why why feel that need to, <laughs> to live yeah, that close to the The only thing is sometimes edge, the preamble you know? gets a little topical, and then I feel bad when it's you know way outdated by the time it airs. But hey, you know. Again, that's the price you pay. So just to, to go back, though, I'm, I'm very excited about this. You know, we, we're trying to do some different focuses on, it, on on our show, on our episodes. And one of the things we're trying to do is what, what I call single-issue spotlight, which is where we, you know, we've done in the past on many occasions, where we take one issue and we really go through it, you know, page by page. Uh, and we talked about doing single-issue spotlight for Detective Comics number 27, being, you know, obviously a seminal book, the introduction of the Batman. Uh, and then when we started talking about it, we actually sat down to record almost a week ago, and we, we started looking, and uh, Scott came up with the fact that Detective Comics 227, I believe it is, has three different versions of that story, and Secret Origins number six has another version of the story. So there's four different versions of the same tale, uh, and we decided rather than do a, it's so it's kind of like a mutant single issue, <laughs> well, or, or, or it's a single issue that has it. mutated over the years. <laughs> So I'm going to correct you just slightly. It was what it was is uh, uh, Detective 27. I was just looking at like where it had been reprinted. And I think the only reason I, th I thought that is I loved your idea of, of you know, Detective uh, 27. I, of course, do not own a copy of it. Um, you don't? But I, it, I, I'm, you know, as soon as you recommended it, I thought, oh, this is my opportunity to get out my. I'm trying to remember what this book actually is. Is this a famous? Yeah, it's a famous first editions, famous first editions. C28. It's one of those, you know, treasury size books. Probably hasn't been off my shelf and, you know, to actually be read in like 30 years or better. 
So I pulled it off the, the shelf to, to reread it. And it's just, it's, you know, this is the way, if you can't own the original, this is the way I would recommend owning this book. It's beautiful in the oversized reprint format. It's an actual, uh, you know, for those that aren't familiar with famous first editions, they are literal reprints. Um, there's actually a warning on the, where is it? On the inside back cover that basically tells you this publication is an exact reprint of detective 27. And the reason they tell you this is that they don't want you to actually send away for any of the stuff that's advertised or whatever in here. I can remember, um, the comic buyer's guide used to have warnings about these two, because if you strip the cover off of it, then it's an exact reprint of the book. And supposedly according to, to legend, um, you know, there were some people that actually got suckered into paying, you know, big money for some of these without the covers because there was Detective 27. They did Action Number One. Um, I think they did the first Wonder Woman. I, I, they did several of them. So, you know, and again, you know, exact reprints. If you if you take the new cover off, the famous first edition cover of it, you can't tell the difference other than it's in a you know the oversized format. So apparently the there were some suckers out there, but anyway, that was a long way of saying, you know, I was looking at, you know, all the times this story has been reprinted and it's been reprinted a lot of times and detective 627 caught my eye and I was looking at that and that's where this is reprinted. But then there's three other versions of the story in that book. Um, another one from, um, Oh, what is it? Three. Detective. 387 was was the first time it had been retold in a story that was commissioned by um, I think Carmine Infantino I want to say and then there's two new versions of the tale in that same book but we'll we'll touch on all this so hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense as we go along yeah it's definitely uh you know, it, it's it's kind of I think it's kind of cool. Uh, I hadn't read Detective Twenty Seven in years, and I had the famous first edition. I apparently do not any longer. I don't know why. There was a point when, for whatever reason, I didn't have any more Treasury editions left. And thanks to uh, some some careful purchases and uh, you know and the generosity of some others, including I think Dave Weeder was the biggest uh, provider of them. Uh, I've regained a lot of you know treasury sized books uh but that is not one i've regained so I, i'm i worked with a microfiche copy of uh of detective 27 to look at this oh, okay. you know which is available as a pdf at this point uh right but you know what what's interesting and and i'd be curious because uh it's been reprinted and, and when we went over it in in detective uh whatever it is 627 Mm -hmm. uh, there was there was uh, something I'm going to make mention of in it, like an error, and I see that it was fixed in oh, that okay. issue. So it's kind of interesting, uh, you know. No 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 fanfare whatsoever. It's just you know let's make this look a little more professional, I guess. Uh, but I find that fascinating that you know even in a reprint of the exact story that you know when they change it, and truth be told, I would rather they never did that on any book ever. If you're going to reprint yeah. it, reprint it the way it was. Or if you're going to change or supplement or recolor or do anything like that, make that very, very clear from the beginning that you've changed something. Because, 
you know, it, it's something where if I wasn't looking at the microfiche version, I would never know this, this, that this particular little mistake, and it's a little mistake, don't, you know, make no bones about it, but I would never know it existed. So you're not seeing it in its real form, and, and I, I, I don't appreciate that. Uh, I'd be curious, do you have your Famous First Editions in front of you? I do, yes. Okay, so you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead of the game. So before we even do a synopsis, I want <laughs> I want to do I want to do a check on this. And okay, uh, let me see if I can find the exact page it's on. I didn't go through like panel by panel or anything, but I caught one change myself. Um, I didn't consider it a mistake. So I'll be curious if uh, if it's something different from what you caught or if it's the same thing you caught. But now you've got me very intrigued. Well, it was it was it was an issue in the lettering. Turn to uh, sixth page of the scan, and okay. I'm looking at the top upper left box, the first panel of the of the page, and in the lettering at the top, uh, it looks pretty clear that Bob Kane, when he got to the fourth line where it says "ready gone to the neighboring," uh, he ran out of room and had to squeeze neighboring in at the end. Do you see what I'm yes. talking about? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do see that. And is that that's in the famous first edition also? It is, that yeah. Way? Okay, because in the in six twenty seven they fix it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, wow. and I mean to me, to me, and and we'll talk about that now because I don't feel like you know beating a dead horse and going back to it later. It just it just shows me the level of not amateurish amateurness of of the productions but just that you know they weren't concerned about like stuff like that this that's the kind of thing that you know as a kid you'd be doing a comic panel and you'd run out of room and squeeze it in like that you know you you would never see something like that in the later days of comics when it became you know more of a business and i think that's that's i think a better way to say it not that it was amateur but it was less of a just less of a business then and more of a i think a labor of love than than it is now well, I just realized, <clears throat> pardon me, in that same panel that you're talking about, the big guy that says, won't you come in? In the original book, his word balloon goes outside of the frame, but they've fixed it, you know, quote unquote, fixed it in the reprint in Detective 627. So it stays within the, the borders. I actually like it. You know, the original one where it's where it's coming outside. That's just, it just looks really kind of odd like that. But it's I don't know. It's stylistic, I guess. We've we've talked about that many times that, that I think uh, you, I and Dr. Bill have always preferred when they're willing to break the panel and, and have, you know, you have somebody's arm going across that, you know, outside that border and into the next panel just because yeah. he's reaching back to throw a punch or something. And, and it, it just to me, it creates like an explosiveness to the story. Yeah. And, you know, we tend to think of that as, as a fairly, well, I, I don't know if you can say recent innovation when some of the stories that, that I'm thinking of with, like, Neil Adams and stuff are now, like, 50 years old. But you know what I mean? You know, newer than the Golden Age. And here it is right here in the, you know, in right in the smack in the middle of the Golden Age. So, but the yeah. one I had caught um, as I was just, you know, I, I had read the famous first editions and then I was just kind of thumbing through. Uh, the reprint of it in uh, 627, the one that I caught, just because the wording was strange to me when I read it the first time, is on page, the second page of the story, all the way the bottom left panel, you've got um, Commissioner Gordon's on the phone, and he's talking to someone, and he says, wait, 
and do not leave anybody in. Uh, we'll be over soon, as soon as we can. What's and then he turns because Bruce Wayne's trying to get his attention. Says, "What's that, Bruce?" And it just that's such a strange expression to be. Don't leave anybody in. So when they reprinted it in six twenty seven, they changed it to "Don't let anybody in," which is how we talk today. And I just happened to catch that. Just be, again, just because "leave anybody in" was such a strange. I don't know. To me, it just sounds really odd. I guess that yeah, must I'm, be I'm how people talk. I'm wondering, is, you know, exactly that. Is that how people spoke back then? Or was that just, you know, Bob Kane was a young, I have no idea how old he was when he did this, but I, I assume he was re- relatively young and just, you know, wrote it, you know, <laughs> as I'm doing right now in my speech, <laughs> you know, used poor language. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if that's just the case. But it's, it's again, I, I think if you're going to reprint it, either reprint it properly or make a note that there have been some changes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be, I, think I mean, we don't have time to do it now, but I'd be curious now to go through, you know, to really go through it, you know, panel by panel and, and, you know, see all the changes, but it's just, it, it is interesting to note that it has been altered. Um, I don't know. I don't think there's any, I'm just, doing a quick glance here. I don't think there's anything in here that necessarily says that we're presenting this, you know, unaltered. We're, you know, we're presenting an exact reprint. I don't think there's anything of, you know, of that nature. There is a little preamble, um, you know, on the inside front cover of 627, but you know, it also makes me curious now if there's any changes in the second story, which is also, you know, so 627, again, has four stories in it. The first one reprinted from, you know, the original uh, Detective 27, and then the second story is also reprinted from a, an earlier issue, and then the latter two stories are original. So now it makes me wonder if that second story may have been altered at all, because that story was wonky to begin with. But, again, we'll we'll talk about that as we get into it. But just doing a quick skim over this uh the preamble here, I don't see anything here that says, you know, hey, this is a, you know, a, a, an exact reprint or anything. It just says that re- they're representing the story. So, yeah, but in my mind and, you know, everybody's entitled to their own way of looking at it. But in my mind, if you don't say that it's altered and you say you're representing it, I'm assuming it's, you know, all original, all the original way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that that sort of th- I'll be honest with you, that sort of thing has always bugged me. Um, and it wasn't really you know, I mean, I didn't notice it all that much as a kid with with most reprints. I think the only one I, I ever really caught as a kid because it just really jumped out to me was when they would alter reprints of, uh, of Marvel Star Wars, where when Luke is running back to the farm, he sees his farm on fire and, and he's running back and he calls to his aunt and uncle, he calls uncle Ben instead of uncle Owen. And it always <laughs> used to bug me when they would reprint it and they would, they would change. Cause some reprintings, they would keep it the same and other reprintings, they would change it. And, and it always kind of bugged me, but it wasn't until I got older and I used to avidly collect, um, Things like uh, like Marvel's uh, what was it called Marvel's Greatest Comics that were reprinting like right, the Fantastic right. Four and you had like Marvel Super Action that was reprinting like Captain America Avengers, Avengers and Marvel Tales and I, yeah. I got to realizing much later um, there used to be a really great site and I don't I, I don't know if it still exists or not but there used to be a really great site uh, you know website that 
talked about it, it actually broke down issue by issue the changes and alterations because I'd never realized that a lot of those reprints in the in the seventies and eighties they were not exact reprints. They would actually some of them the Marvel ones would shave two pages of story out of and that every is, issue. That is the biggest sin as far as I'm concerned. That's yeah. the one that bothers me the most. And, and yeah. you know to me it's akin to when they put a TV show in syndication and they cut out scenes and you think you've yes. seen this show a hundred times. And then for some reason you see it on a DVD or a Blu-ray or something. And all of a sudden you're like, I've never seen that scene before. Yep. It's so funny you say that because that, that I was just where my mind was going is I can remember buying when they started coming out, coming out on VHS. I can remember buying Star Trek um, when that first started coming out. And just being thrilled that there were new scenes. I'd never seen this scene before. And it's, you know, exactly for what you say, when they went into syndication and the networks demanded more commercials, you know, they shortened the episodes. They would cut scenes out. So, yeah. yeah but it's like and, the stages of grief for me, where at first I'm thrilled that I'm seeing something I never saw before. And that's followed quickly by anger that I, it had been kept from me. <laughs> well, I, I think that. Honestly, I think that lends in to my longstanding disdain of reprints. Um, I, I loved reprints as a kid because it was a chance. You know, you got to remember this was pre-internet. This was before, you know, for me anyway, before comic, you know, before easy access to back issues. So I loved reprints. I, I loved when they would reprint old stories and everything. And, you know, as a kid just getting into comics, it was great. You know, you, you had access to stories that you, you couldn't otherwise find. But then as I got older, and, and especially after learning that so many of them were abbreviated, then I, it quickly turned to disdain to where now, um, you know, if it's within my means, I always seek out the originals. I mean, but, you know, there's certain ones like this one. Yeah, I'd, I'll probably never put a hand to Detective 27, so I have to content myself with the with the reprints. So if it's going to be reprinted, if that's the only way I can own it, then I want to make sure the damn thing's complete and unaltered, you know? It's funny that, uh, you know, you say you never put a hand to this. You know, I, I have a picture of myself, uh, which I enjoy, of me holding a slabbed copy of uh, Amazing Fantasy 15. And <laughs> I'm thinking... You know, that's as close as I'm ever going to come to owning it is the person who was selling it allowed me to hold it and take a picture with it. Right. Uh, but I'm thinking I won't even get that chance with Detective 27. They, they wouldn't even <laughs> let me hold a slabbed copy, I don't think. <laughs> well, you know, never say never. You never know. There might be, you know, one one of these days that, that magical yeah. yard sale that you stop at. But, you know, as time wears on, th those kind of dreams start to, start to fade for me because, you know, these books are getting pretty old, you know. Yeah, I think I think the likelihood of my ever owning that is directly tied to the likelihood of my ever winning Powerball. <laughs> well, because I think we that's the only chance of my ever purchasing it. Uh, right. But let's, yeah, why don't we jump in? We got four, four versions of one story to cover and they're, they're all a little different from each other. So we're going to have four synopsis. Uh, so why right. don't we jump into this now? I'm going to give you the golden age synopsis, which is the original Batman issue. Uh, which is cover dated. What is the cover date on this? I, I... So cover date for Detective 27 uh, is the cover date was May of 1939. It was actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on April 18th, 
1939, and it was uh, a whole dime, 10 cents. And this uh, this story, um, nearly every one of the ones that we're going to cover for this, you know, the, the retellings and everything, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them are called the same thing, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. This is the first Batman story. And if I understood correctly, this is technically written by Bill Finger and drawn all all visual aspects by Bob Kane. Correct. Yep. Okay. So, and the synopsis is as follows. Commissioner Gordon brings his young friend, Bruce Wayne, along while investigating the death of a chemical manufacturer named Lambert. Lambert's son is falsely accused of the murder, and he implicates Lambert's partners, Alfred Stryker, Paul Rogers, and Stephen Crane. Stephen Crane is killed by two gunmen, but a vigilante called the Batman arrives in time to stop them escaping. The Batman finds Paul Rogers visiting the laboratory of Alfred Stryker. Stryker's henchman, Jennings, locks Rogers inside a gas chamber to kill him. The Batman breaks in through the skylight and rescues Rogers and punches out Jennings. It is explained that Stryker organized the murders to gain full control of their business. Stryker attacks the Batman, and the Batman pushes him over a railing into a tank of acid. The Batman remarks that it is a fitting end for his kind. Gordon later tells this story to Bruce Wayne, who considers it nonsense. It is revealed when he goes home that Bruce Wayne is actually the Batman. And it's, yeah, it's a simple story. How many pages are we on this one? Uh, uh, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I, I thought it, I, I know the beginning of 627, uh, that inside front cover, that's the first thing it says is the story isn't long, only six pages. So I wanted to actually count. But yeah, it is. It's only six pages long. Yeah, so it's and that's typical of this this era, you know, the short story, uh, the very yeah. film noirish feel of it. Uh, it's you know, well, I, I I get a kick out of the bat hyphen man. Yeah. Every time I see it, I don't know why, but it just makes me smile. Uh, <laughs> but just as an introduction to the character, I think, especially when you consider the era that this came out in, I can see why this took off. This I think this hits all, all all the you know checks off all the boxes for this era. Film noir was a very big thing in this era, and this is a you know a more kidified version of film noir, but it is definitely you know that noirish uh, dark feel to it. Uh, you know without being something that parents would be overly upset about their children reading. I don't believe, even though it has murder and things like that in it. I love the look of the Batman, and it's funny you know you and I were talking about this the other day. Uh, I, I'm a fan of the people who draw Batman with the giant pointed ears. I don't know. I always get a pick kick out of that. But when you look at the way he was drawn initially, where you know the, those those ears are, are smallish and they are far more like a real bat in the way they're positioned. Yeah. Uh, yeah. From a practical point of view, this makes so much more sense than the cowl with the giant points on it. I, I also like the way the cape looking much more like a bat's wings. Yeah, he's definitely more, especially like, you know, his outlet, his silhouette is definitely more bat-like. Because that, that is one of the things, you know, despite the fact that, you know, my favorite versions are, you know, of course, like Jim Aparo and, and Neil Adams and that sort of thing. I can remember even as a kid, though, a lot of times thinking, he doesn't really look like a bat, you know? <laughs> Whereas here he does, uh, you know, when when he is spotted on the rooftop um, on page, what is this? Uh, 
this would be page three of the story. Yes, page three of the story, second panel, where the the guys climb up on the roof and then Batman's standing there next to the chimney. Just he's just standing there with his arms crossed, but the way his cape is formed, he's got the moon behind him. To these guys, he would just be a dark bat-shaped silhouette. That would be damn scary, you know. And that that's really cool. I, I like that. In, in, in some ways, it's similar to the way they introduced the character for the first time in the 89 movie when he came up. On yeah, the, I, that's the what I was thinking, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder. I, I, thought, I, I would imagine that was a conscious thought that uh, that they had when they put together that movie was to try and, you know, create a similar feel, not necessarily recreate the scene, but create a similar feel to it. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and it's I mean, it's typical of the time, the playboy rich guy who. You know who who fights crime at night. I, I wonder. You know, was that purely uh, the adolescent fantasy that you get? You know, all of your, your all of your wishes. Not only are you rich, but you get to be an adventurer. Uh, <laughs> or or is it somehow? You know, uh, a, a, uh, a you know we, we look at comics today and we see the political messages in there, and sometimes they're bothersome. Uh, and I'm going to leave that at that. Uh, but. Is is there something you know trying to say? Oh, capitalism's good. Look, you know the, these these rich people, they're they're all you know helping us in in their private in their spare time. You know, I, w- I wonder if there's some sort of innate message that they were trying to give there. That that's I hadn't thought about that, but that's definitely possible. I I always chalked it up personally to there was just a lot of imitation going on. You know, you had you know uh, Batman really borrows a lot of you know, his early makeup from like the shadow. And that was the shadows whole thing, you know, is that he, you know, he had great wealth that he was using to, to fuel this, basically this empire that he had created to battle crime. And so, you know, a lot of the early superheroes, um, and it's funny too, because, you know, the whole superhero thing was born, of course, from Superman. Yet Superman, that wasn't his thing. He he wasn't rich. You know, he was just a guy. You know, he was a reporter. Yeah, but it, it, it goes with it does go with what I had said earlier, though, the adolescent fantasy, because even though he's not rich, Superman, Clark Kent, you know, put a little slash in between them, has everything. He right. wants yeah. for nothing. Yeah, that's very true, too. But yeah, I mean, so many of the the early superheroes were, you know, bored rich guys. You know, you had Starman, you had, um, uh, and now my mind's gone blank. Was it yeah, Green, Green Arrow? Arrow. I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I was the Green Hornet thing. also, wasn't he? Yeah, Green Hornet, um, Doc Savage. So yeah, there were there were a lot of them. So that I, were I'm, like I'm going to attribute it more to the adolescent fantasy of having everything you could wish for. And not so much the political message, because I don't think I, I don't think they were as politically active in that in those days as they are now, uh, because they were also targeting a different audience. Well, I mean, but I, I think there definitely was some of it. I mean, you look at the early Superman stories and and I, I wouldn't say that there's they're grinding an axe, you know, politically. But I mean, I think there's there's definitely some some political statements being made in there. But. As you say, probably the, the less said about that sort of thing, the better. But I was uh, I was approaching this from an angle of, of trying to see, you know, trying to, to divorce my mind from everything I know about Batman. Like if, if you were reading this for the very first time, you know, what what was in here 
versus what he became, you know, the character became, uh, you know, what, what has carried over essentially. And, you know, you've got, of course, you know, Bruce Wayne, you've got the whole board millionaire act. You've got the commissioner there, right, you know, right from the, the get go. You've got the basic look of Batman. You know, you've got the smarts, um, you know, the detective skills and all of that. And that's really about it. You don't have a lot of the the tropes that we would eventually get. You know, you don't have, um, a, you know, no mention of a bat cave. You know, he doesn't use a batarang. I don't think he does, he does he drive uses... a car and it is not a Batmobile. Yeah, that's my favorite, actually. Believe it or not, that was my favorite aspect of this. Um, and we'll, we'll touch on that again with another story that we're going to look at later. Um, you know, that there's no, uh, you know, what we've come to classically think as the Batmobile. He does have a car right from the, the get-go. But now here's a question for you. The th- uh, one, two, three, fourth panel of the story if you dismiss the the header, the Batman header says the commissioner and Bruce Wayne speed towards the Lambert residence and there it's a red coupe. And then later when Batman is driving somewhere um, on the, I think this is the fourth page of the story. It says he speeds his car for uh, toward an unknown destination. And again, it's a red coupe. Is this the same car? So is Batman using Bruce Wayne's car or That's, does, that was what, that was my take on it. That he's using Bruce Wayne's car, and that <laughs> you know, if you had anywhere near the ability to track somebody that you have today, it would be like, oh yeah, it's Bruce Wayne. Yeah, <laughs> like, it would be, it would take you like two minutes to figure it out. <laughs> uh, I, I get a kick out of just you know, I, I didn't actually make written notes as I read it. I planned on it, but I never got around to it. But I get a kick out of the second panel. It's it's like the thing they've made fun of so many times, you know, with, with, with the, phone, the phone call with it. They're actually parroting exactly what they're being told. Right, so right. you don't have to hear both sides of the call. Hello? What's that? Lambert, the chemical king? Stabbed to death? His son's fingerprints on the knife? I'll be right over. <laughs> it's to, Again, you know, to me, I, I'm thinking, I don't know. I, I should look up how old was... I guess how old was Bill Finger? Because he is the scripter on this. Uh, how old he was at the time this was written? Uh, because that's something you know. It's 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 a very lazy exposition, is what it is. He was born in 1914, so he would have been 25 years old in 1939. Yeah. All I know is the next time you and I talk on the phone, I'm going to do that. I'm going to repeat everything back. What's that? <laughs> Bill can't come on the show. <laughs> Timmy's in the well. <laughs> You're right, though. I don't know that it was a cliche back then, but I, I have seen an awful lot of stories where, and, and even like TV shows do that sometimes, or used to do that. Yeah, I think uh, I think once funny. people caught on that that was so ridiculous that they, you know, they started coming up with, with other ways of, of doing it. <laughs> but even even later in the same story, you know, whatever it is, one the next page middle of the next page, he's on the phone again, and you have a, a, another bubble where you're actually getting the other side of the conversation so that you don't have to do that. Right, right. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe he might have realized even in, you know, in the process of making this that, you know, oops, that was a mistake. Let me fix that. What do you think of the artwork? I, you know, I like it. I, I've always kind of had a, a soft spot for Bob Kane's artwork. I, I really do like this. It's, you know, definitely not my preferred style or anything. And 
Um, I'm not big on Golden Age stories uh, for for a number of reasons. For one, they just they tend to be rather. Um, I don't know what the word would be. Any any word that comes to mind would be sound really insulting. So I, I, I'm not sure what word to use. But they just I don't know. They just don't appeal to my sensibilities. I guess um, a, a lot of times they're they they're kind of dopey. Um, but this isn't. I mean, it's it's. You got to remember. You got to remember when it came exactly. out. Exactly. That's the, the style of the time. That's that's the thing. You've really got to adjust your brain to, you know, to what it must have been like back then, type of thing. Um, but artwork wise, yeah, I, I like it. It's it's simple. Um, it can be a little bit awkward in places, but overall, I think it works really well. It's it is very film noirish, and I really like that. Um, it's more detailed than a lot of similar stuff from from this time period. I, I think the only thing that that really I would criticize all that much would be um, sometimes when he tries to get a little too creative with angles or something you know perspectives sometimes it that's where it looks a little warm but overall you know the, the figure work is really good um batman you know does strike a, a dynamic figure and everything and you know the action looks really cool so yeah i mean it is dynamic and i you know like you said i can see where you know this was you know, exciting and new back at this time. You know, this this is something where, ooh, you know, I, w- I want to know more about this character. You know, he's dark, he's mysterious. Um, you know, he he has a certain coolness factor about him that makes you want to know more. You know, why why is he doing this? Why is he dressed this way? You know, how did he get these skills? What's you know, what's his mission? That sort of thing. When you look at the art. And here's, here's what was going through my mind as I was reading it is it's unfair to compare the artwork of 1939 to the artwork of 2021 or even even 1959. Uh, think about what level the artwork was on at that time. And it's really kind of unfair to compare it to other comic books, because I think the real growth was not from other comic books but at this point the growth was from the sunday or the even daily newspaper strips right if you look at the artwork in this book it really does have that newspaper strip feel about it it's just you know in a much longer form story because it's six pages instead of being you know three panels or or you know maybe on a sunday you'd have you know nine panels or something like that uh but it, it 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 definitely has that newspaper strip feel to me yeah, it it does. And it flows very well. Um you know, again, I'm no expert on the golden age, but I mean, I've read a fair amount of golden age stories and one of the things that always really drives me nuts with golden age stories is where the the word balloon placement is weird so you don't know the order in which the characters are speaking and and it breaks the flow of the story as we've come to know comics, you know, modern day. I mean, I can get past things that have changed over the years, like thought balloons have changed over the years. Um, when a character's whispering, the way that's depicted has changed over the years. So I can forgive things like that. But when the the layout is so different that you can't follow the the progression from from panel to panel, or sometimes within the panel, the progression of like a conversation that breaks the whole thing for me. And there's none of that in this. Everything flows. You know, the 
the the primary speaker's balloon is usually above the secondary speaker's balloon that that sort of thing you know that we've come you know again this is the language of comics that we've come to know and this story i mean i don't know that all batman stories back during this time you know flowed this well but this particular story flows well enough that you know it it kind of you know it kind of uh, denies its age in that aspect, you know, and, and it makes it flow just like, you know, like a regular modern comic would. And I like and I that. Think, I think your, your word flows is, is exactly the one that I was looking for, because, again, comparing it to the form of the of the day, which would be the newspaper strips, they did not have a real template yet for pacing and for storytelling in a long form. And again, it's only six pages, but compared to that, what was at that time that is long form right uh they didn't have they didn't have a template for that and i think uh in this particular issue i think kane and finger i'm going to give them both credit on it i think they paced this story very well and i think the artwork tells the story very well and it doesn't feel like okay you, sh- you know once you've read three or four panels you could put it away and pick it up the next day it just flows right you know right into itself uh and i, I think that's that's an accomplishment for this time right yeah absolutely now, I'm going, to, I'm going to touch on the controversy that I told you I wasn't going to touch on, but I'm going to do it very, very briefly. Uh, and, and I am going to do it in the way of defending Bob Kane for something I've heard about. Uh, and I'm, I'm not talking about the controversy between Bob Kane and Bill Finger and Bill Finger not getting credit for whatever. That is what it is, and I'm leaving that on the table. One of the things I've heard, though, uh, is criticism for Bob Kane that he had basically a studio and he would have other people, you know, working under him, his assistants, whatever, and then he would get credit for the artwork that wasn't always necessarily his. Uh, and as the more we've done this show, the more we've come up with instances where there are situations in modern day where that was the paradigm as well. Uh, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, the, the best one I can come up with, I, it was, I think, George Perez and Rich Buckler were both part of Neil Adams' uh, studio at one time. Yeah. So they were yeah. working with him and doing work that Neil Adams got credit for, and they didn't. Yeah. So, and, and, and I'm not saying that to criticize Neil Adams. I'm saying it to say that is a normal industry standard. So realistically, I think people who are getting on Kane for having done the same thing are looking to get on Kane. Yeah, I, as opposed heard, to having a legitimate argument. Yeah, I, I totally believe that. I, I've heard the same thing applied to to Dick Giordano over the years. The, supposedly, a lot of the stuff that he is solely credited for doing, you know, as, as the inker, um, the probably the, to me anyway, the most famous one would be uh, his work on Crisis on Infinite Earths. According to things I've heard, a lot of that work is not actually him. That it's actually his studio um, doing the work. How, how many books? Just how many books have name. we covered on this show? I'm sorry to, to step on you there, but how many books have we covered on this show that there was one inker credited, and then when we looked closer at it, you could see it was a many hands project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So I, again, I'm I'm not trying to to raise controversy. I'm trying to quell it. Right. So. You know, I, I think I think I think it's 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 become vogue to criticize Bob Kane for everything possible. Yeah. And I think it, it's gotten, you know, the, the pendulum, maybe maybe Bill Finger should have gotten more credit and all of that. And again, I could leave that on the table where it is. But I think the criticism has gone too far the other way because it became popular to criticize him. Well, it, it came up again recently. Um, I, I forget what the whole context of it was now, but I, again, recently I, I got you know involved. Thankfully, it didn't turn into a thing, but got involved in a, in a little discussion with someone 
um, about the whole thing with, with Bob Kane and Bill Finger again. And I, I think, I, I feel like somehow I've been misrepresented uh, in my, in my feelings about the whole thing over the years, because I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, a Bill Finger detractor. I, I have great respect for the man because not only for the work that he did with Batman and, and the contributions to Batman and the mythos and everything, but for his work with other characters as well, including like Superman. So, you know, I, I think rather highly of him. My whole thing has been, I don't understand this need to elevate one by defaming the other. And, you know, at the end of the day, for me, Bob Kane created one of fiction's greatest characters. He created the Batman. And for some reason, there seems to be this just like need out there for for some people to try to take that away from him or or to like knock him off this pedestal or something and i I just don't understand that kind of thinking uh you know to me i kind of subscribe to the stan lee school um there's a really great interview out there if you ever get a chance to watch it it's it's a jonathan ross documentary for the bbc um i think it's called in search of steve ditko something steve ditko if you if you google if you go into like YouTube and you you put in Jonathan Ross, Steve Ditko, it's going to come right up. This this really great uh, documentary. But during the course of that documentary, he interviews um, Stan Lee about the whole controversy of who created Spider-Man and sharing the credit with Steve Ditko. The the whole thing with Steve Ditko and, and Stan Lee gets people just about as fired up as the whole thing with with Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And Stanley has a moment where he kind of forgets himself. I think he's on camera, he's being interviewed, but I think he kind of forgets himself for a moment and he gets kind of angry and he goes, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically just slips and he goes, you know, look to me, the guy that comes up with the idea is the guy that he's the creator. And then he, after a moment, he, he cools off and he tries to kind of take it back but I, I think we're seeing what he really means, which is he came up with the idea. Therefore, he is the creator. That doesn't mean that Steve Ditko didn't have anything to do with the creation of Spider-Man or any input into the character. Obviously, he came up with the visual aspects and a lot of the ideas and everything. It's kind of the same thing here. I don't think anybody is trying to take anything away from from Bill Finger and, and his contributions or anything. But at the end of the day, Bob Kane came up with the germ of the idea that was Batman. And then by collaborating with Bill Finger and Bill Finger, you know, giving his input and, and you know, so many of the things that he came up with, he kind of put the, the flesh on the skeleton, so to speak. And, and so that's how I see it. And. To me, I mean, this may sound very academic, like why, you know, why, what's the difference? To me, it's like you you have to understand that these characters, um, you know, so many of the iconic characters of comics that we know, they didn't just spring into the world, you know, in the form that we know them today. You know, it's been a long, you know, in, in the case of like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, it's been a decades long process of adding to the legend of these characters to the point where they are the characters that we now know. And so if you're going to start wanting to, um, you know, revise history, so to speak to, to now 
credit other people with their creation. Where Where's the line that where do you stop that? Because Bob Kane and Bill Finger, um, yeah, they they, you know, OK, say you want to give them equal credit in the creation of that character where there's still other contributions from other people, you know, decades along that adds to who Batman is or, or for me personally, Superman is probably the better example because I know more about that character. You know, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, yeah, they created that character. But you have to look at people like Otto Binder and Mort Weisinger and, you know, John Byrne and, you know, all these other, you know, creators over the years that, that put, you know, the legend of Superman together and, and added things like the Fortress of Solitude and the Phantom Zone and, you know, the, the, you know, all these different aspects that we've come to know as that character. So are they also the co-creators of that character? I mean, where do you draw that line? And and that to me is that that's the whole reason why it bugs me when, you know, I, I see all this revisionist stuff now saying, you know, Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. It's like, well, no, he wasn't. He was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger as you know, a, a collaborator or as a contributor the same way, you know, decades of other creators, you know, Frank Robbins and Neil Adams and all these other people were contributors to the legend of Batman. That, that's, just, that's just the way I see it. I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody. I just don't understand why people want to try to take this this distinction away from Bob Kane. And I think a lot of it comes down to personality. There's all these legends over the years that, you know, Bob Kane was a dick and, you know, he was this and he was that. Well, you know, OK, well, we have creators today that, you know, people acknowledge that they're generally considered to be assholes. But I don't see anybody trying to take credit away from them for, you know, for the things that clearly they created or they, you know, they brought about. So why why this guy? And it's just one of those things I see on the Internet a lot that you cannot bring up. There's there's two names that it just seems like you cannot bring up on the Internet these days without it turning into a flame war. And that's Stanley and Bob Kane. You just cannot bring those names up on the Internet without it just turning into a complete shitstorm. And I don't understand it. I just it's to me, that's really sad because you've got two people that, I mean, really gave us a lot over the I mean, two huge contributors to the medium of comic books why can't they get their due yeah, i think i think you know just not to beat on a dead horse and i do want to move on but uh <laughs> just to hit, to hit on a, i think what is a prime example of, of what you're talking about is uh marv wolfman and george perez being create uh, credited with the creation of nightwing yes and so so then the question becomes well they didn't create the character of dick grayson right uh and what they did was they took that character and they built on it. They gave him a new costume and a new name and, and then kind of a new role. But he was still the same character. They did not create Dick, Grace, Dick Grayson, but they did create Nightwing. So where right. you know, where do you draw the line on that? Uh, the one I always thought was kind of silly was, you know, when, when the lawsuits were pending about the creation of Superman. Uh, and it was, you know, denied, okay, DC Comics owned Superman, blah, blah, blah. Well, what about Superboy? We created him, too. Well, that's the same character as a boy. You know, it, it's you know, it's not you didn't create a really a new character. 
and and I always had a problem kind of putting that together, and I, I don't really want to turn this in into going off on that any further. But I just you know, food for thought is what I'll leave it at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I always think of is that thing with Nightwing. It's I'm I'm not sure. I'd love to know the thinking behind that because clearly, yes, okay, yeah, they they contributed to adding a huge piece of of the mythos of that character okay so we, we should rate this one and move on to the next one and we're never we're we're not even right. getting too covered yeah absolutely if we don't move on. um all right you want to you want to rate the uh... uh you know what i'm i'm just gonna say it it is uh again taking into account the era that it came out in and the level of creation that we had at that time it it is all icon you know the creation of a, an iconic character, uh, although there's elements of the character that are not contained within this one six page story because that would be impossible. Uh, I don't think there's anything in this that, that really gets retconned out. I think they really gave a solid solid base for this character, and therefore I'm just giving it all around A's. I'm giving it all around A pluses cover, artwork, story. Because I think it, you know, I am taking into account the era it came out in, and I'm also taking into account what became of it, and how this laid the foundation for it. You know, I I, I can't argue with that. I, I was I was trying to think, man, how in the world can I can I possibly rate that? Because you know, there's all the thing with mental gymnastics of trying to put your mind back in the era and all that. And yeah, I think that the easier thing to do is just go. Obviously, it is iconic. Obviously. Uh, it stands the test of time. I mean, just the simple fact that uh, this is one of, if not the most expensive comic book in the world right now, uh, it, it, I think is testament to, you know, the power of this first issue. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll, I'll echo what you said. I, I you know, while I, I don't know that I would necessarily say the, the interior arts, you know, an, an A plus for me, I really I enjoy it. I, you know, the story is very, very good, but the cover definitely the cover to me has always been. I mean, this is one of the most iconic covers in comics. So, yeah, I think it's you know, you're looking at the, the case that we always talk about of, of the, the product being more than the sum of its parts. So, yeah, A plus. All right, so moving on, uh, we're going to now dive into uh, Detective 627, but the first, well, the first story in 627 is the reprint of what right. we just read, and then the second story is uh, The Cry of the Night is Kill, which is uh, a recreation by Mike Friedrich as the writer, and then Bob Brown and Joe Giala as the art right. team. Uh, and and I found out, you know, I, I lived in East Meadow from 1996 until uh, this year. Uh, and I found out years ago that Joe Giella was an East Meadow resident, although I've never met him. Uh, we were scheduled to meet him at Eternal Con that one year, but he, I guess, was ill and didn't make it. Uh, so there's always been a, a soft spot for me ever since I learned that for Joe Giella. So he's the anchor yep. in this issue. Now, this one, um, this first appeared in... Detective Comics number 387, which was the 30th anniversary issue for Batman. Um, and it was cover dated May 1969, was actually on sale on uh, March 27th, 1969. Uh, this was a story, uh, I forget where the hell I read this, somewhere. Um, oh, it's, it's right in the beginning. <laughs> it's right at the top of the header. It says, to celebrate 30th anniversary of Batman's debut, Julie Schwartz, uh, I'm sorry, I had it wrong. I was thinking it was uh, Carmen Infantino. Julie Schwartz 
commissioned a special story, an updated version of the very first story of the Batman. But what's funny is, you know, as you say, they didn't call this the case of the chemical syndicate. They renamed it to the cry of night is sudden death. Uh, which, yeah, that's really odd, I guess. <laughs> um, we're going to just kind of breeze through this one real quick. Here's, here's the skinny on it. Here's the synopsis. Batman and Robin help Commissioner Gordon investigate the death of an atomic chemist named Lambert. The lead suspect is Lambert's hippie biker son, Mel, who treats Batman like a fascist. Robin is outraged and wants Mel locked up, but Batman disagrees. They visit Lambert's partner, Stephen Crane, who tells them Lambert and Mel recently had a heated argument. Batman and Robin leave, and a gunman who looks like Mel Lambert murders Stephen Crane. Paul Rogers visits Alfred Stryker, and the same gunman pistol whips him. Batman and Robin burst in to defeat Stryker and the gunman. It is revealed that Stryker hired a killer to dress like Mel Lambert, and frame Mel for the murders. Stryker was attempting to eliminate his partner so he could claim their research as his own. Robert learns to be less biased, and Mel Lambert learns that sometimes the system works. Um, yeah, okay, that's kind of a spotty synopsis. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to briefly say on this one, I thought the story was crap. Um, it's so dated, and even... Even beyond the fact that it's really dated today, I wonder if it was even like relevant at the time it came out because the way the hippie guy speaks is so forced and ridiculous sounding that I'm thinking that at the time uh, it wouldn't even strike the right chords with with the people that it was intended for or whatever. I I think even at the time it probably sounded really wonky and and awkward. And it's again, it's that thing we've talked about before of, you know, old white guys trying to sound, you know, hip and cool and mod, you know, and just not understanding the hippie culture at all. Uh, It reminds me of like Stan Lee having Harry Osborne call Peter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the only the only people who speak like that, you know, are yeah. 70. <laughs> and and here's a guy who's, I guess, probably around 40 when he's writing it, putting it in the mouth yep. of a teenager. Yeah. The, the other thing that, that really um, didn't work right for me in this, while I liked the tension um, and, and kind of the the um, well, tensions, I guess, the best word for it. Between Batman and Robin, um, I like that because I didn't realize that the you know the contention be- between them started as early as this. I think of that more you know later, um, you know when he eventually would split off and, and eventually become Nightwing and everything. I like that you see a little bit of this when they get back to the cave. You know, ba- Robin's actually up in Batman's face, you know, like, and, and really getting on, you know, like, why did you let Lambert get away? You know, why are you letting him disrespect you and all of that? But as the story wears on and Batman has to repeatedly tell Robin, you're jumping to conclusions, you're jumping to conclusions, the evidence doesn't bear you out and all this stuff, it makes Robin seem really thick, like he's just dumb. And, and is not listening to his mentor, who is, I think, even at this time, Batman was considered the world's greatest detective, wasn't he? So it just... Yeah, no, I think he was. Yeah, so it just makes Robin seem... I don't know. It just... it, it I didn't like the, the way it, it presented him as just... He's so biased against this guy that he can't 
he can't pay attention to the evidence. He like he wants this well, guy. I, so... I, I kind of attribute that to him defending Batman, though. Like when he's getting in his face, you know, what is he, he's yelling. Uh, if it weren't for guys like you, we couldn't even walk the streets at night. So he's defending Batman right. because this this hippie kid was, you know, blasting him with his stupid hippie language. You know, you fuzzy wuzzies think just because you got a gun, you can go around and hassle anyone you feel like. And and the language in this, you know, you mentioned that. Uh, I just couldn't help think. I, I know it's Mike Friedrich that wrote this or Friedrich. I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh but it, it, you, you know, if you told me it was Bob Haney, I, I would have just, you know, accepted that in a heartbeat because it has the feel of, of, of either Brave and the Bold or Teen Titans. Right. Well, that's the thing is, you know, Robin's getting all on this guy. He's all pissed at him and everything for his, you know, the way he talks and he's a beatnik and, you know, he's he's down with the system and all this other shit. But then you pick up any issue of like Teen Titans from this time, and, and this is Robin and his pals. They're they're talking even worse than this, calling Wonder you know Wonder Chick, and you know all, it's all this ridiculous. So it's like you're you're part of the same culture that you're down on this guy for. I just I the whole thing just didn't work for me. I'm I'm sad to say. Um, although I do want to say I really like the art in this. I I like Bob Brown a lot. Um, I know it's kind of a simplistic art style. Um, this this is going to sound weird, but one of the reasons I really like this, it reminds me a lot of Batman coloring books I had when I was a kid. And I know that probably sounds like a slight, but it, it's not intended as a slight. I have really fond memories of some of those early Batman coloring books because um, – while I'm kind of loath to admit it today, as a, as a small kid, I really liked like the old Batman, you know, the '60s Batman TV show reruns and stuff. You know, it was kind of you know early Batman for me. So stuff like that and those early coloring books and like the Super Friends and that, you know, that was some of the earliest Batman stuff I ever got into. So while I don't really associate Bob Brown with Batman, you know, I, I think of him more like Superboy. This this art style, you know, it just it kind of has a warm fuzzy quality to it because it, it's very simple. It's kind of cartoony, um, but it's just you know, it, it's a Batman of a different era that I, I really like. Well, we we started to talk about the the progression of artwork going into you know com, comic strips to comic books, and you know now we're jumping ahead almost thirty years, or we are jumping ahead exactly thirty years. And uh, if you look at it, though, I think it's progressed and it's going to progress from here because it looks to me like this is somewhere that uh, Jim Aparo kind of built on what was going on here to develop his right. style. And he's he is my formative Batman yeah. artist, so I can never look badly on what Absolutely. he did. Uh, and we're going to touch on him later. But I, I see this as, you know, like the step in between. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, because you've got. You know, Bob Brown here, and, and there's a lot of this. Um, specifically, there's a panel here somewhere. Um, let's see, of the scan, this is page number 24. It's the third panel where, where Batman is really decking the guy that's dressed like Mel. Um, the panel, you know, like, it's all colored black in behind him, and Robin is saying, now that's the kind of teamwork I can dig. The Batman right there, swinging that fist, that looks like an Infantino drawing the the whole panel looks yeah. to me so this 
yeah, to me, this is kind of like a bridge between like Infantino and like the the Neil Adams Jim Aparo era. So yeah, and you could even you could even put you know yeah. Dylan in that equation as well. And I've never been the biggest Bob Brown fan because some of his artwork always looked simplistic to me. I always thought his artwork lacked a certain dynamism, but I'm kind of seeing some of it in here that I don't normally uh, uh, put to him. You know, the, the shot, the shot, uh, what is it? The eighth page, uh, you know, it's, it's numbered in page eight where, uh, there's the gunshots up ahead and, you know, we got a kind of a dynamic angle with Batman and Robin looking yeah. up on a two thirds of the page panel. I think that's kind of dynamic. I think that's a pretty cool shot. Uh, you know, some of the action scenes I think have, have more dynamism than I'm used to again from Bob Brown. Uh, the panel you mentioned, and then the panel just before it, where Robin is tackling the guy by the ankles. There's, I think there's some really, really well thought out angles and you know, decent yeah. anatomy. Yeah. So I, I think the artwork in this far out, far surpasses the uh, writing. Now the writing, I mean, they were handed kind of a, a template for the story, uh, and all they did was sixtyfy it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, I can't say that they did anything anything beyond that is taking it and making it into a sixties yeah. story. Which it was the 60s, so you know we can only criticize so much, but it's so dated. And like you said, you know you got to question if if it was even timely in 1969. Well, they they changed it a little bit in the aspect of it's it's more about you know this this axe that the kid has to grind, you know, treating Batman and the cops and Commissioner Gordon like there's some kind of fascist or something. Plus, I can't help but notice that for all the gunplay, for all the violence and and fisticuffs and action. It doesn't have any teeth compared to both the original version where a die a guy dies horribly by falling into a vat of acid. I mean, what a horrible way to die. Plus there's I mean, there's several outright just murders and, and gunshots. I mean, the original story is violent. Um, this one, not so much. I mean, the guy does not meet his end as he does in almost every other retelling uh, of this story. And it's just kind of funny that, you know, of the four versions of the story in this particular issue, Detective 627, this this is kind of the, the pussier one. I'll, I'll, I'll agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's, I, I don't know. I think there's not a lot. There's no. not too much more to be said no. on this one. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's... I guess in 1969, if you read it and, you know, it would have been fine. Uh, the only question I have is, you know, how, how do they do this into continuity? Is this Earth 2 Batman? No, I, I think by this point, let me see. This was originally, what, 380s? No, this is the Earth 1. Yeah, well, this, this is Earth 1 Batman. Because the uh, who's who, I think it's who's who. Um, yeah, it would have to be who's who establishes Batman. I want to say 327 as the first appearance of the Earth One Batman. So yeah, this is, and I think 327. I think that's the first new look Batman, if I'm not mistaken. And and then the question starts to become one. Then how do we accl acclimate the two stories that followed up that are basically the same story over again, told different ways, and and you know totally that's over really time. funny because uh, there's a note for that on the dc wiki page that actually addresses that very thing where it says where is that 
Um, oh crap! Now I'm not seeing it, but I, I know I did see it, and I, I got a real kick out of the fact that it that actually addressed that by saying that um, that they were two incon you know quote unquote incontinuity uh, incontinuity stories that can totally conflict each other that DC has yet to officially state which one is the official story. So, I, you know, it's funny for me being such a continuity wonk. I mean, I'm really big on continuity. It bothers me greatly, you know, when, when the, you know, franchises don't follow their own continuity or when they scrap them and reboot and all this other stuff. But there are instances where it doesn't bother me. And I think that's because Batman really lends himself well to that approach what what was the title legends of the dark knight where they came right yes. out and they told you we're just going to tell batman stories they may or may not fit with the rest of the batman comics that are coming out right now we just want to tell fun stories I, i'm okay with that if you tell me that up front i'm actually really okay with that because then you have freedom you can do what you want to do what bugs me is when they do that in the regular title and they don't tell you it because then to me it comes across as you just don't give a shit, which some of them don't, you know, like Bob Haney, uh, Bob Haney, rather, you know, Bob Haney, he was not concerned at all with continuity, you know, and knowing that somehow sensing that as a kid, it didn't really bother me when Brave and the Bold would just kind of do its own thing. But when it's the regular ongoing series of any character you know superman batman whoever you know in their regular title and you got some you know writer artist team that comes in and they just completely contradict something or or don't pay attention to continuity or whatever it comes across as like they either don't care they don't know or some combination of the both and and that really bothers me because it it just it's it's unprofessional to me but here, I, I, I get you know this is a special anniversary issue, so I kind of get a kick out of that whole thing. Um, but we'll talk more about that because I, I want to know. I, I'm just curious for you, having read both, which one would you say uh, you would favor as being you know this is the official you know this is the continuity story. You want me to say that now? Or you want to wait till we're done going over? Ah, uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's do. Uh, why don't we do the synopses on both of these? All right. So let's. I'll, I'll give the synopsis for the third okay. version of this, uh, which now the the third and fourth versions are, unless I'm mistaken, versions that were specifically made for this yes. Yes. issue. So they're both being published for the first time Correct. in this issue, and they are both entitled uh, "The Case of the Chemical Syndicate." Yes. Yes, and the one that I am going to give the synopsis for now is written by Marv Wolfman. It is penciled by Jim Aparo, inked by Mike DiCarlo, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Adrian yep. Roy. And the synopsis is, Industrialist Theodore Lambert is killed when a costumed woman covers him in highly corrosive acid. Bruce Wayne talks to Lambert's environmentalist son, Ted, who is a close friend of his. Detective Hanrahan interrogates Ted, but he is found not guilty. There is a press conference held by Lambert's business partner, Stephen Crane. The costumed woman arrives to murder Crane and several people in the audience, calling herself 
pesticide. Batman is unable to stop her. They investigate the third partner, Fred Stryker, who was crippled and disfigured in a chemical accident. It is revealed that Stryker's daughter, Priscilla, is pesticide, taking revenge on those who caused her father's accident. Pesticide attacks the remaining partner, Paul Rogers, and reveals her identity. Batman stops her from dropping Rogers into a vat of chemicals. Pesticide battles Batman and insists that she is not a killer, she is only seeking justice. Pesticide tells Batman that he would do the same thing in her position. Then he, she accidentally destroys the catwalk she's standing on and falls to her death in a tank of acid. Batman remarks that he would not do the same thing. Uh, I like this version a lot. Uh, this this may be, I haven't really considered what you asked about the uh, which one would be my incontinuity one, and this may well be uh, for several reasons. Uh, first of all, Jim Aparo, at this point, 1991, I would say he was probably past his prime, but he brought his prime pencils back out of the closet yeah. for this one, because I, I think I think the, the artwork in this is beautiful. Uh, this 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 to me is is reminiscent of you know late 1970s yeah. Jim Aparo, uh, you know when again when he was kind of at his best, and I, I don't know how much of that is is Mike DiCarlo really bringing it up a level, uh, or if it's just Aparo doing what Aparo did. In, in either event, I think the artwork is beautiful in this in this book. I think the storytelling is is terrific. I think the panel layout is is innovative and and really well done. Uh, I like the fact that you know you have the the villain who considers herself to be a hero and who you can relate to. Uh, you know, and and then we're getting you know more into the later era because she's you know a costumed villain with a you know code name, not just a uh, you know just an industrialist in a film noir type story. Uh, so there's there's a lot of elements of this one I really like, and ultimately, you know this this I think it's just very very well done and I enjoy it. Uh, you know probably gets a little preachy on the whole chemicals thing, but you know so be it. I'm fine with that. <laughs> and uh, that's that's my initial thoughts on it. What what do you think? I really like this one a lot for for a lot of the same reasons you said. For one thing. Um, I really enjoyed the writing on this particular one. This this may be the best written one of the four issues in this issue, uh, or the, excuse me, the four stories in this issue. Um, but I, I tend to re- think rather a lot of Marv Wolfman. But I really enjoyed the writing in this. He he does a lot with you know just with characterization and everything. He's taking the basic. Uh, story of the case of the chemical syndicate but not just retelling it i mean this really is a very different story it has a lot of the same basic beats as the original but he he does new things with it um so you know it's new and it's interesting it's not just simply a retelling it is violent um i mean the the deaths by the chemical spray are just brutal and they're really uh disturbing to see this this is a level of violence um i can't recall seeing from a paro since his work with the specter in adventure comics where he would have people die like being cut snipped in half by giant scissors and things like that you know just really gruesome deaths and we're seeing that here you know people being melted by chemicals and um you know the the uh, you know, the, the bad guy pesticide, which that, that was my one quibble with the story is, you know, 
Why did she, why did she have to have a, a, a super villain name to begin with? But pesticide is a really goofy one. <laughs> but, you know, she herself falls into, you know, the vat of chemicals, just like in the original story and everything. Um, unfortunately, Batman does not say, uh, you know, the thing about, uh, you know, a fitting end for their kind. He actually feels really sorry for her, which, you know, is, is in itself a change from the original one. Um but yeah, I really like this. But probably the the biggest thing for me is, as you said, uh, this is classic apparel. This looks really, really good. Um, I have always been a huge Jim Aparo fan. I mean, Jim Aparo's Batman is my Batman. When when I discovered Batman as a kid, you know, the very first Batman comic I ever had, uh, you know, was a classic, you know, Jim Aparo issue. Um, I've been on a quest here very recently to go back in and, and fill in uh, my Jim Aparo collection because uh, especially with the Batman stuff around the time of like Nightfall and, and all of that, um, I stopped collecting Batman. I've been actively collecting Batman for you know decades, um, but I stopped. And a lot of the reason was not only wasn't I really digging the stories anymore. Um, I wasn't enjoying Jim Aparo's art anymore, and I feel really badly about that now. And I've tried to figure out like why didn't I like it? And I just attributed it to you know what happens to a lot of these guys, you know, where you know once they were great, but now they get old. I don't really think that was the case with Jim Aparo. I think the problem was he stopped inking himself for whatever reason. I don't know if DC made him; they were trying to speed up production, or maybe he just didn't want to do it anymore. But he started being inked by other people and not doing his own art. And when that happened, his art style, of course, changed. And I just don't think that Mike DiCarlo's really a good fit for him. I, I, I've never really thought that their art styles meshed very well. I'm still not really crazy about it here, but this is some of the better looking Apero DiCarlo stuff I've seen. I, I do think the art in this is really fantastic. And this is hearkening back to, you know, that classic 70s uh, apparel Batman stuff. And it just looks great. Um, it's really, really well done and uh, and nicely colored as well. So, yeah, I, I dug this one quite a bit. I really got a, a big kick out of this one. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, and like I said, I, I, I really think the panel work is just really good. Uh, just a, a, a quick thought, the character of pesticide, uh, if they were to do this on film, uh, I forget what her name is. Is it from, from game of Thrones or from even the new star Wars? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's it? Gwendolyn Christie. Uh, I, is that I, her name? Yeah. I don't know. Something I don't like know that. the actress's name, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. I, you know, she, she's especially on Game of Thrones. She's presented as a very, very large and imposing woman, uh, and she's got you know the blonde hair. She's she's physically looks exactly like what this character looks like here, and that's all I could picture yeah, as I was reading. That's it. a good call. Yeah, that that'd be perfect casting because that shot where she pulls the helmet off there. I don't know what page on the scan. This is page number forty nine where she says, "You have to ask that of your own granddaughter." Yeah, that's totally. Uh, what was the character Barine or whatever on uh, on Game of Thrones? Let me let me, let me yeah. I, I, I'm I know, drawing you, a I know blank you, right exactly now, who so. you're talking about though. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you exactly before we sign off this issue. Uh, Captain Phasma, right? Yeah. Yes. 
Now, of the two stories, this would be the one that I would favor for saying that this is the actual incontinuity one. And the, the biggest reason for that is that it continues the continuity that was going on in the title of the time. You've got uh, Detective Hanrahan, which I got a real kick out of that name because it reminds me of, uh, of that movie Slapshot. <laughs> get, get the reference with that. Hey, Hanrahan! Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Hanrahan's an ape. I knew it was uh, just quickly, it, it, it is... <laughs> It is uh, Gwendolyn Christie is her name, and she was Brienne, Brienne of Tarth yeah. on uh, Game of Thrones. Yep, yep. Um, you know, there's mention of uh, of Jim Gordon's uh, heart attack. Uh, you know, so it just it feels like you know a, a continuation of the continuity that was already going on in this title. So that that would be my biggest reason to to say that this was the quote unquote official one. Uh, but that's not to detract from the last story in here because I really like that one too. Um, I'll go ahead and dive into that we'll one. We'll, we'll get to it. that one in a moment. Oh, okay. Well, let's just give a quick rating to this story because I think the artwork on this one, and I didn't really see the problem with the DiCarlo inks that you're seeing. Uh, I think the artwork's a straight out A for me. Uh, and story wise, I think this is really just a, you know, I know it's an adaptation, but it built upon it. It didn't just say, okay, I'm going to tell the same story again in a, in a goofy right. way. Uh, I think it, it, it was built on in an intelligent way and it made a lot of sense. And I think it presented Batman the way he was in the era, but it's also has more of a timeless quality than the 1960s version does. So I'm going to give the writing on it an A also. Uh, the cover on this book is a, uh, a kind of a, a current recreation of Batman 20 or detective 27. Uh, I'm not even sure who painted it. It's a painted cover, uh, but I don't think it necessarily ties into this as far as the rating goes. So I'm just giving this story a straight out A. Yeah, that cover, that the painted one on this is uh, by Norm Brayfogle, who's the artist of the last story. So it actually ties more. In, All right, yeah. so we'll tie it into that one. I, I didn't actually rate the cover, so we'll leave that okay. for the last story. Yeah, I, I think I'd go you know, very similar on this. I don't know I'd go all the way as an A on the art, um, just because there, there is something to it. I'm, I'm not sure what it is um, that... I think this is the closest I've seen in quite a while of, of the latter day Jim Apero to the, you know, the classic stuff we think of, of his from, you know, from the seventies and eighties. Um, but this is, I mean, this is really good stuff. Um, and then, you know, the story's top notch. I really enjoyed the story a lot. Uh, I, I think it's very well told. I think there's a lot of great characterization in here and just the brutality of it. You know, I mean, she murders that entire uh, you know, the entire assemblage there for, uh, uh, what's the guy, the Stephen Crane. And it's, it's just brutal. Um, the way the couple, you know, the, the wife runs in to try to save her husband and then they both end up melting together in each other's arms. And it's just, oh, it's, oh yeah, that was yeah, very it's harsh. really brutal. The, the, the violence in it. Um, you know, several people getting, you know, doused and melted with chemicals and, you know, she herself falls into the vat at the end. It, it is really brutal, um, but well written. I mean, very well written. And, uh, and Batman, uh, I, I love the action with Batman in this whole thing. I like seeing Batman where, you know, he's clearly concerned for himself. You know, he's he's doing what he can to, you know, not to get injured or whatever. But at the same time, 
he also doesn't hesitate, you know, going down onto that platform to rescue the guy over a vat of, you know, bubbling chemicals that would sizzle him alive. You know, that, that takes real guts, you know, that's, you know, one misstep, you know, not only has he, he has the threat of the villain that could pour chemicals down on either him or onto the thing that they're standing on and probably dump them in there. But then, you know, if he just simply missteps, he'll fall in. So, you know, that that sort of thing just I don't know. That's that's true heroism right there. That looks really cool. So, yeah, I like that. I, I think, right. you know, an, an overall A for the, for the you know, the product as a whole. OK, so let's move on to the last one. In this All right. Book. Last one in here. All right. This again, the case of the chemical syndicate this time around. Uh, it is scripted by Alan Grant. Uh, penciler is Norm Brayfogle. Inker is Steve Mitchell. Adrian Roy, again, is the colorist. And I think pretty much the, the same uh, cast beyond that. So in this one, Batman and Commissioner Gordon investigate the murder of chemist Professor Lambert. Their first uh, suspect is his son, Mel Lambert, who is innocent of the murder but turns out to be a cocaine smuggler. Batman investigates Lambert's partner, Stephen Crane, and finds him executed by two men pretending to be robbers. Batman beats the robbers and they name Paul uh, beats the robbers and they name Paul Rogers as the man who hired them. Alfred Stryker, you know, it occurs to me, do we have we ever met a striker in comics that wasn't a bad guy? <laughs> Alfred Stryker. <laughs> Not that I can remember. There's uh, Deathlock had right? Stryker yeah. in it, right? You got Stryker from the X-Men, so yeah. <laughs> Alfred Stryker is the real culprit, and he forces Paul Rogers to commit suicide. Rogers leaves a suicide note taking credit for the other murders, then Stryker hangs him by a noose. Batman arrives and realizes this deception, although he is too late to save Rogers. Stryker uh, gets into a shootout with Batman and the police. Stryker tries to leap over a metal railing and falls to his death in the tank of acid. Batman remarks that this is a fitting end for his kind, which goes to the call back to the original story. It is explained that Stryker was responsible for handling the chemical syndicate's waste disposal. Uh, waste disposal, that's hard to say. His negligence uh, led to the deaths of several vagrants, and he killed his partner so they wouldn't turn him in. Um, I love the art in this particular one. Um, it has always struck me as odd for me personally how much I really, really love Norm Brayfogle's art style because I feel like I shouldn't. It's so weird. It's so angular. It's so kind of sketchy, scratchy. Um, it does so many things that I don't like when other artists do it. Yet it totally works for me. It, it just has a certain. This is like, it's like Neil Adams and and Jim Aparo and Gene Colan all had a baby. You know, it's like it, I see several different, very disparate art styles all in one guy, um, and I, I think that was purposeful on Bray Fogel's part while he was doing Batman because I often saw things that he would do where he was kind of pulling in other artists styles of Batman into his artwork. So he was never aping any one person. He was never like ripping off anybody. He was kind of adapting 
different artists' styles, you know, here and there into his own style. To, to you know, his Batman was very unique, and I could pick out his his Batman, but I could also see where his Batman owed a lot to, uh, you know, to other creators before him, and I really liked that aspect of his. He he, he had a a way of doing it that was very fluid to where you could see the other influences, but it wasn't distracting or, or anything. And I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but that's just how I always saw his art style. And I, and I really like it. I, I always thought he was a, a really great Batman artist and a very underrated artist. I'm going to agree with you to the extent that I really think he was a good artist. Um, and I, I think to me, it's demonstrated by the cover. I look at the cover. Yeah. And I think it's beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful painted rendition of, uh, you know, 27 updated to modern uh, styles and, and all of that. Uh, but I look at the art in this issue. And while I think Bray Fogel is a great artist and I can see in the layouts and the storytelling what I like, the actual final product is just not what I go for. It's 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 a little too loose for me. Uh, the pencils are a little too scratchy in some points for me. It's just not what I look for. Uh, and it just, it, in a lot of it, it screams out 1990s to me. And I, you know, you and I have in the past very often defended the 1990s saying that, you know, they, uh, you know, they, they get a bad rap, so to speak. Uh, but this is the style that was just overall embraced in the nineties that I didn't like. And, and there's elements of it that jump out at me and I start saying, this is the really good art trying to come out. Uh, I'm just, just looking at it quickly. The, uh, I'm trying to, there's, there's a lot of shots of just Batman where he's really in shadow. Uh, the, the page where, where he's spraying the knife to, you know, the shot where he's spraying the knife, to see it. It's a simplified image, but I think it looks really cool. Um, the, uh, the, the full page splash page, I think is a really nice layout, although I think it could have been finished nicer. Uh, and just, just, you know, there's, there's, you go past that to, you know, two panels after that, uh, you know, it's clearly very cartoony in the way it's presented, but I think it's trying to be presented from, this is how scary Batman looks to the yeah. bad guys. And, and there's something about that that jumps out at me. So it's like, I look at the artwork and it's not what I like in the final product, but I could see greatness in it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Just, I mean, just turning the next page, uh, first panel, you know, an extreme close up on the bad guy's eye, uh, as, as this sweat running down his face. Uh, it's just very, very cool. There's, there's, like I said, there's stuff in here that makes me, you know, makes me really enjoy it when I look at it more closely. Uh, but on first blush, it's just not what I like art-wise. And then to come off the art for a moment, uh, story-wise, I just feel like it's so much less innovative than the one we just read before this. That, it, you know, it, it if it was just the only version of it, I probably would rate it higher, but it pales in comparison in my mind. I, yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree with you there. And I feel badly saying that because I really like Stephen Grant, or excuse me, uh, Alan Grant, rather, Alan Grant as a writer, uh, especially on Batman. I really liked his run on Batman. Uh, I liked him in Jurassic <laughs> Park. But yeah, the the thing that say because there's a lot of elements of this, and again, it it's it's update. It's funny because the other one that you know the 
one that we just looked at wasn't updating for the era uh, of the original story as well, but they're very different. Um, they almost feel like they could be like a decade apart in, in their approaches to updating. Um, it almost feels in a, in a weird sort of way, like you have the original one in the, in the thirties, you know, almost the forties, uh, you know, 39. Then you've got the one in the sixties and then that the one that we looked at, the Jim Apparel one, could actually be like the 70s or 80s. This one right here could be like the 90s or like the late 80s going into the 90s. And, but they're actually contemporary stories. But this one feels... But they're contemporary stories, but they're by creators that are more tied to the eras yes, that you're talking yeah, about. Yes, absolutely. And so there's... There's points of it that kind of sort of, you know, the whole cocaine thing. Yeah, I, I guess. But then you got the, the bum that's trying to tell the cops about the chemicals. And it, it, it's a little bloated, I think. There's just there's a little bit too much going on and it doesn't quite successfully tie in together at the end. It all seems a bit weird and, and muddled in that way. Um, but what saves it for me um, is the artwork. Um, I, I really I, I don't know what it is about Brave Like I say, I feel like I shouldn't like this guy's style, yet I do. Um, and the the part that saves this story for me to where it kind of elevates it from being like eh, it's okay to where it's like oh I really like this is the entire sequence um, starting on page ten of the story where Batman's rushing to this guy's house. And he actually sees them kill him. He actually witnesses them shoot the guy in the head. And you see the the guy that's just shot him. He says, makes me puke when they grovel. Uh, when I pop my cork, it'll be with a little dignity. And I'm presuming that Batman actually heard that comment. Because when he comes in, this is a much more brutal and violent Batman than we would typically get. Because he beats the holy hell out of these. I mean the shot on the top of page 12 where he's simultaneously slamming the guy to the ground, breaking his arm at the elbow and then like hitting him as hard as he can in the head against the floor. That's brutal, dude. I mean, that's a really brutal Batman that we didn't typically get short of like dark Knight returns or something. I mean, Batman in this instance, I mean, He's not killing the guy, but he might as well because that's got to hurt, you know. And the gritted teeth panel at the bottom. I mean, this whole sequence to me, I, I can actually like hear Kevin Conroy and the music from like Batman, the animated series. This this yeah. is this is quintessential Batman for this one moment. And, and the art just to me, it just really pops. I, I really like it. Yeah, the Batman, you know, in the second panel where he's saying, big man with a gun, aren't you creep? You know, that's very cartoony and very stylized, but it's also damn scary, you know. So it works in that aspect of I think you're right. I think you're seeing what this guy's seeing. You're not necessarily seeing the literal Batman as he really looks. You're seeing him how he appears to this guy who's who's pissing his pants. And that's cool. That that kind of works for me. And it's stories like this and this type of approach and this type of art style 
that make me realize why I've never really been happy with, with any live action portrayal of Batman, because there's certain things I don't know that you can really do real world, you know, live action that you can totally get away with in comics. And, and this is a great, this, this one page is a great example of that. You have several disparate art styles and presentations of Batman all on one page, all in one sequence. It's basically, it's almost four different versions of the same character in four different panels on one page. And it all, to me, really works well. I think it's great. That is, that is a very cool observation. And, and yes, very true. I can't disagree with that for a second. Although, once again, I'm, I'm going to just kind of give my thought that on first blush, I look at this and it's not the art style that I like. But once I look at it closer, when I start, you know, de deconstructing it a little bit, there's a lot of things in the artwork to like. Yeah, yeah. This remind this, you know, just looking at this issue again, and it's been a long, long time since I've pulled out and looked at any of my Norm Brayfogle Batmans. But I can just remember, you know, being a big fan of his when he was on the regular, you know, when he was the regular Batman artist. Uh, I remember really digging his stuff. And even at that time thinking, I don't I feel like I shouldn't like this, but I do. But looking at that one page, it it reminds me of I don't know if you've ever seen it. Or you know what I'm talking about. But during zero hour, there was this one Superman story where because of the weird wonkiness that was going on with the universe during the zero hour event, there were all these Batman's. It was it was a Superman issue. But it had Batman in it, and Batman kept changing. So one minute he'd be Frank Miller Batman, and the next minute he'd be Bob Kane Batman, and the next minute he'd be like Neil Adams Batman or Jim Aparo Batman. Do you know the issue I'm talking about? The, no, but I definitely am going to seek that out. There, there's actually a two-sided poster of this. Uh, it was a promo poster, and on one side you have Batman standing in the middle surrounded by supermans and all the supermans are different and you had like um jerry C you know joe schuster superman and kurt swan superman and, and neil adams superman and john burns superman all these different supermans flip it over and it was superman in the middle surrounded by all these different batmans that i was just talking about and the artist on this shocking to me was john bogdanov who i always thought was a shit artist i'm sorry john bogdanov i just never liked your art but on that one book in that one poster the guy showed that he was an incredible an incredible mimic that he could adapt every one of these different art styles to his own art style and make it recognizable that they were that artist and that's kind of what i think Bray Fogel did on a regular basis with his Batman was that he adapted all these different Batman artists styles and, and kind of blended them into his own. Because as I look at this one page, that Batman that's slamming the guy to the ground and punching him in the head, that's Bernie Wrightson. And then you look at like yes. the one in the middle of the page. And to me, that's very, very Jim Aparo. And the one at the bottom is, I don't know, I, I kind of see several there. I see i see a lot of Neil Adams. I see somewhat Jim Aparo. Um, the only one I really can't 
really nailed down would be the cartoony one in the second panel. And that one I would say is that's Norm Brayfogle because that was, that was the one that we seemed to get the most often was the kind of exaggerated, really angular, very cartoony one. I think he did them a lot like that. on Yeah. Covers. Yeah, he did. And, and I really, I like that about his art style. Um, there was some other panels in here, you know, where I saw like uh, the one where he's, leaping down at commissioner Gordon saying what happened that looks to me like Pat Broderick. So, you know, just so many different artist styles in there. And I, and I really think it was intentional. Um, after the guy falls in the acid and gets, gets killed, he does several panels where it's clearly aping, you know, homaging, uh, Bob Kane, you know, with the, with the weird ears and the very angular mask and everything, it looks completely different from everything else in the book. And so, you know, it's for that moment, he's purposely giving us that iteration. I, I think this story with, with no fanfare at all, I think he was really homaging and, and paying, you know, paying homage to a lot of artists that had come before him. And my, my only, you know, my only real, uh, you know, quote unquote evidence for that would be that, uh, I'm presuming it would be Grant as the scripter. Somebody, maybe it's the maybe it's the letter, or I don't know, but somebody dropped references to creators all through this story. Almost everything you see, every label, every sign, every street sign, everything is is a reference to somebody that had worked on Batman. You've got um, Engelhart's, you know, the danger toxic waste sign in the, on the opening splash is Engelhart signs, you know, for Steve Engelhart. You've got uh, Kane Trucking. Um, there was a, just a whole bunch of Rogers Hotel, Austin's Art Supply, Chan's Costumes. It's great. It's just all through the story. I mean, so apparel yeah, advertising. So many references. The only one I couldn't figure out, there was one in here, and I. I I've lost it. I don't know where it was, but there was one, something about Kev's and I don't know who that would be referring to. Maybe Kevin Nolan. Maybe I, I don't know. I, I, I've lost it. I don't know where it was, but I just, I, I thought that was really, really cool that there were so many of them Boland art supplies. I, I just, I think that's really neat. So yeah, I, I didn't think a lot of the story. Um, but I, I definitely really liked the art. Oh, and I had a question for you. So on the on the very last, it's a two-page final splash that I think is really really cool. Um, with the the bat symbol in the sky has the number six hundred in it. Batman's kind of leaping and swinging uh, through the sky. All these bats. At the bottom, you've got this really cool like villain collage type of thing. And I can identify most everybody there, but there's this one guy with crazy eyes that's reaching out of the bars. Who the hell is that guy? All right. So I'm looking at, I'm looking at the picture that you're talking about. I mean, I see where is the character that you're talking about? So see where the penguin and the Joker are. And then between them, you've got Mr. Uh, Freeze. Yes. Okay. So you're talking about the guy reaching out, reaching his hand out there. Could that be like what's his name? Zaz, the guy. Who oh, okay. Yeah, I knew, I knew it had to be somebody kind of. I don't know if yeah. it is him. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Yeah, I, I just he looked vaguely familiar, but I, I just no name whatsoever was coming to me at all. 
But I like this. That's a name that comes to me. Whether or not it's him, I don't know. And anybody who's listening, you know, let us know. Tell us, uh, tell us why I'm wrong, because I probably am, <laughs> and tell us who that is. Yeah, I, I really like this because you've got, you know, of course you got the iconic guys. You got, you know, Joker, Two Face, Penguin, but you've got some pretty obscure ones in here too. Because that one in the top, it's near the top right. He kind of looks like the Spectre. I think that guy's name was, Mm -hmm. I think it was the spook and he's a pretty obscure Batman villain. Who's that just below the scarecrow? Uh, I anarchy. Okay. Which is also a very obscure. uh, It is, you know, it's, it's a pretty cool picture overall. I would say the one guy who I don't like the way he's drawn in particular. Uh, and it's more because it took me a minute to figure out who it was is Ra's al Ghul. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that one too. Well, I don't think of Ra's al Ghul as being in prison. You know, these are these are all, you know, maybe it's symbolic, but it all looks like you know they're behind bars. You know, yeah, but I think it's yeah, symbolic. and I don't think of of Ra's al- Although I say that, but then again, the very first Batman story I ever read was Ra's in jail. So <laughs> I don't know. My argument doesn't make sense. I guess, but I also don't. I, don't know who the guy is underneath Crazy Quilt that looks like the villain from uh, The Princess and the Frog. Who the hell is that guy? The voodoo-looking guy. I don't recognize him either. Yeah, I'm. I'm confident it is a voodoo guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know which who who it is. I'm going to say it's uh it's the guy from uh, Little. <laughs> you got a uh, Black Spider. He's a pretty obscure uh, Batman villain as well. But yeah, I, I I think it's a really nice piece of art. But yeah, what did you? Uh... Yeah, it is definitely nice. What do you? Uh, and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say in 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 the rating of this, uh, I think the story unfortunately is kind of pedestrian of a recreation, much like the first recreation was. So I'm gonna say you know it's it's a C. It's you know it it it's there. It's not bad. It's not good. It's it's just a recreation. It's not especially creative in my mind. Uh, the artwork. I walked into this ready to give it a C, uh, and you've pointed out so many good things in it to me that I'm, I'm bumping it up to a B. And I think if I had a greater appreciation for Bray Fogel, I'd probably go, even go a B plus. Uh, and the cover is an A. <laughs> yeah, I, I so love. So I'm going to give this this. I'm going to give this this story a you know I'm going to give it a, a B overall, uh, factoring in the three things together. Yeah, I, I love the cover on this. I've often wondered if they if they did a, a poster or anything on that because it seems to me that I, I remember seeing like a promo poster. So I could be wrong on that, but I, I thought there had been one. Uh, but yeah, I, I really love that that cover uh, recreate you know, painting recreation of uh, you know the classic Detective Twenty Seven cover by Bray Fogel. Um, love the art in this. I, I and I, again, I don't know why. Because when when other artists do this sort of thing, it usually really puts me off because um, I, I think of John Bogdanov's art style as very similar to this. And it, that totally put me off. I, I suffered through all the issues of uh, what was the book he did? Superman, Man of Steel um, that he was on. I just never I never took to his style at all. Um, there's a later Batman artist that would come in a little bit later than this. Uh, what was it? Kelly Jones, I think is the name. And I never could stand yeah, that so. art. Yeah. I just hated those covers and really hated that style. And that's very similar to this as well. So I don't know what it is exactly about 
Brayfogle. Well, I, I think I think you, you you know I think you pointed it out in your description of it. It takes a closer look. It requires that you look at this closer to see what it is that you do appreciate about it because there is stuff there to yeah. appreciate. But if you just if you know, I, I think you and I are, are the uh, the ends of the spectrum on that. If you just give it a cursory look, uh, you're going to walk away dissatisfied by it. But if you look at it more closely, there's a lot there. And you know, if you look at it the right way, which you obviously did, uh, you may even see it and appreciate it without realizing it, which is an even better thing. Yeah, I would. I think he would have been really. Although I really enjoyed you know the the art style on the the Batman animated books. I've been working my way through those recently. Although I really like you know that they did uh, you know the style very faithful to the TV series and everything. I think Bray Fogle's style would have been uh, would have been really suited to that as well. And again, maybe that's part of the reason I like it so much because I really like that aesthetic. I, I don't know. It's just, but I, I, but I do. But yeah, I agree with you on the story on this one. I'm going to bump it up slightly to a C plus just for, um, I, I think that sequence where Batman busts into the room and just beats the holy hell out of those guys. I think that's a great Batman moment. The rest of the story, though, I think is kind of yeah, it's kind of meh. Um, but it's it's worth the price of admission just for that moment because that's some classic Batman stuff. Um, the R on this, I, I really dig. I'm not sure where to grade it because I don't think of this as you know it, it's not a material, but but I think it's damn good. So I, I guess like a B plus because I, I really do enjoy it. Um, but I, I but I don't find it as as visually appealing as you know some other batman artists like say a pair or or adams but i see it as you know in kind of a similar vein so yeah overall it, it's it's solid i really enjoy it quite a bit so there you go and i don't know if we if we mentioned at the top of the show or not that we had another book but because of time we're we're going to hold off on that other book so we'll, we'll bump it into another episode but there is one more um it's kind of a retelling, but it's more of a, of a consolidation of that story. The case of the chemical syndicate, making it part of a, of a larger, uh, well, what it was, was it was secret origin. So it makes it part of the origin of Batman. And, uh, we'll look at that next time. Cause that's actually a much, uh, bigger and broader story that we don't want to get short, you know, give it short shrift. So there you go. Exactly. But we will get to it. And, uh, this was fun. I really enjoyed the, doing the comparison thing. So, you know, maybe we might have to find other stories that have been retold and, and do a comparison, and we'll make that an occasional uh, thing that we do. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed this, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it, everybody, and we'll see you in a week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks podcast group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzocor of Milan, Italy all rights reserved take a moment to stop by and support their other fine podcasts won't you thanks and we'll see you next week yes you do have a good lala that didn't sound right